0: You're listening to the CyberWire Network, powered by N2K.
1: Well, hello everyone, and welcome to a special live edition of the CyberWires Hacking Humans podcast. We are coming to you from K Before Con here in Orlando, Florida. Just so everybody can hear that we actually have a live audience out here. How about a round of applause? Can we hear it? Mm-hmm. This is the show where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire, and joining me, as always, is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some great stories to share. We've also got a special guest uh, later in the show. We're going to welcome Kevin Mitnick to the stage. He's one of the most well-known hackers in the world, and he's also the chief hacking officer at No Before. Before we get to our stories, I want uh, everyone to welcome to our, the Hacking Humans podcast our special guest, Stu Showerman. He is the founder and CEO of No Before. Stu, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. How about a round of applause for Stu? He made all of this possible. Um, Stu, I wanna thank you for hosting us here today at uh, K before con thank you for sharing your stage with us, sharing this audience with us today. Um, we do have an exciting announcement to share with everyone here today. Uh, thanks to the uh, audience growth that we've had over the past year that we've been doing the Hacking Humans podcast, thanks to the support of KnowBefore. Uh, today we are happy to announce that Hacking Humans has been renewed for a second year. So we're gonna be around.
0: Thank you very much, Stu. You're welcome. By the way, do you see the unfair advantage? They have scripts, I don't. Yeah, yeah, sorry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, well we've got some uh, great stories uh, to share this week. Uh, Joe, I'm going to kick things off today and um, I wanna start off by getting a sense from the folks in the audience here. How many of you have been around long enough to remember what a 900 number is? Let's see a show of hands, 900 number. All right, terrific. Put Hands down. Now, the contrast to that, how many have no idea what a 900 number is? Anybody? All right, a few of you out there. So, back in the, I want to say, 80s 90s. or so, 90s, the telephone system, back when phone calls used to cost money to uh, make long-distance calls, the phone company came up with something called a 900 number, and that's where you could call this number and get some sort of service and uh, they would charge you a permanent, ch- everybody's laughing when I said service. <laughs> what, you what all kind have used 900 numbers before. So <laughs> you could, perhaps it was a psychic or a dating service or something else. So you'd call up and they would charge you a permanent fee to be connected on the phone. And this was very interesting when it first started. A lot of people uh, lost a lot of money and a lot of folks who uh, used to take advantage of some of the peculiarities of the telephone system, would take advantage of that to be able to use 900 numbers for free. Um, Kevin Micknick's coming up here later. He might have a thing or two to say about that, perhaps. Well, there's a scam that is going around right now. This is an article from uh, the Washington Post, and it's called, Do Not Call Them Back. The FCC warns of late night scams. So what happens is you're at home in the middle of the night, you're minding your own business fast asleep, and your phone rings but it only rings one ring and then they hang up. So you're woken up, time passes, your phone rings again, one ring, hangs up. How many people would call that number back? If that happened to you in the middle of the night, how many people would call that number back? Nobody admits to doing that. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. This is, but I would say that we are probably an above-average crowd when it comes to uh, knowing how to respond to these. I think a lot of folks. Joe. I mean, how would you feel if you get a call in the middle of the night? It's usually not good news. Yeah, that's
2: usually the worst thing that the worst-case scenario that you can imagine. The first thing you go to is, oh, some family member has some kind of serious problem. Right. They have passed away. You know, right. We have older older parents. Right. That's the first thing that I would go to.
1: Right. So, what's happening is with this scam is that people are calling from other countries, from Mauritania and Sierra Leone, and they have country codes of 222 and 232. Uh, and so you will see that number on your phone, and it looks like a domestic call from the US. But if you call them back, in fact, you're connecting to the international equivalent of a 900 number, and that's the scam. Sometimes they will leave a message that says uh, either it's an emergency, please call me back, or they'll leave a message that says congratulations, you've won something. Either way, uh, if you return the call, that clock is running and they're charging you X number of dollars minute. Mm. Um, The story goes on to say that if you find yourself a victim of this, uh, one of the things you can do is uh, contact your phone provider and they will perhaps back out the charges. And if you don't have any luck there, you can file a complaint uh, with the FCC. Uh, Stu, I wanted to uh, touch base with you on this. Um, It seems like there's a lot of different things in play here that you all deal with. And first, uh, that emotional component. You're woken from a, a deep sleep wondering if something's gone wrong.
0: Yeah, call it related to what um, we heard this morning from Apollo. Um, Your your attention has subtly been focused on something negative, you worry, uh, you stop your normal rational thought, and you might just grab the phone and dial that number, and here's your 10 bucks a minute that starts clicking in. Right, right. I also think it's fair to say that if you're
1: woken up, you might not have your wits about you, like you would during the day. Right. Yeah,
2: you a, might not be thinking clearly. Yeah, thinking you've a little. Just gotten
1: up, being a little foggy at two a.m.
2: At two a.m. Right. Yeah. Yes. And, and the other thing is that this is a numbers game. You know, even if even if nobody in the audience responds, right? Uh, if if they make thousand calls and ten people call back, that's a successful ratio.
1: Right. Right. The other uh, technique that this article points out is uh, what's called neighborhood spoofing, and I suspect many of us have seen this. This is uh, certainly in the past few months. I've seen this on my phone plenty of times where someone will, uh, the the people who are calling will imitate the prefix from your neighborhood, so you are more likely to think that this is someone local and not just a random call from out of the blue. It makes it more likely that you're going to answer that call. Let me get another show of hands here. How many people if the phone rings on your mobile device and you do not know who it is, how many people just let that go to voicemail or don't answer at all? <laughs> Almost everybody. Isn't that interesting the way that the use of the telephone system has changed that it's it's as much a screening system now as as anything. If I don't know who you are, you're going to voicemail first.
2: Yeah, if I get a phone call from somebody I do know and they show up in my contacts, and I'm wondering why they didn't text me to tell me they were going to call first. <laughs> that's, that's kind of how I think about it. There you go. I'm, I'm like, this is rude. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I think I would be much more, much more likely to answer one of those neighbor calls if it happened on my home phone, because growing up everybody in my neighborhood had the same area code and prefix. And now in my neighborhood at home, I know that a lot of the businesses around my neighborhood at home have the same area code and prefix. But on my mobile phone, I think that doesn't work as well because it's not associated with a geographical area because it's not a cabled out switching network.
0: It's a a cellular network.
1: Right, right. Some of us are even old enough to remember when you could make a local phone
0: call without entering an area code. Yes. Yes. I prefer these days to have these things go to voicemail because Google is so very friendly uh, to transcribe what they say and the transcriptions are hilarious. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. My, my wife and I have actually, uh, we still maintain a landline because there are just enough legacy folks that we that have that number from like our mortgage company or something like that, and so we keep that landline, but it doesn't even ring in the house. It goes straight to a, a Google Voice account, which then transcribes it and texts it to our phones. Mm-hmm. And the nice thing about that is we both get it on our phones, so we're we're not going to miss a message. You take away that oh, did you take a message? Well, who called? And, and of course. Nobody calls that number anymore, so I don't know why I still keep it, but, uh, but yeah, there you go. You can give
2: it out to all the affinity programs yeah, yeah. so that when <laughs> right. they sell your data, it's useless.
1: Right, absolutely. All right, well, that's my story. Joe, what
2: do you have for us this week? So We've all heard of the IRS scans, right, where the IRS is calling you and they're saying, you're in deep trouble, Mr. or Mrs. You need to owe us money. Well, it looks like things are changing. The FTC issued a report last month, earlier this month, rather, uh, no, it was in April, that said that these guys are shifting a little bit and they're not imitating the IRS anymore, they're shifting to imitating the Social Security Administration. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty much the same scam, and there's an there's a article in the New York Times from Ann Carnes that talks about this this week. But uh, to give you an idea of the scale of this thing, when the IRS scam was running at its peak, and that was during 2015 to 2016, and that was 12 months. They scammed people out of $17 million, wow. mm. okay? In the last 12 months, the Social Security administration scams have already scammed people out of $19 million, including February and March, they scammed people out of $6.7 million. And if you look at the FTC report, the graph for the Social Security scam is, a, is a, like a hockey stick, it's way high. But what's interesting is that the, the graph, they also graph the uh, IRS scams, and that's just going down. So it's, it's as if they have, the scammers have learned what, what the problem is, that the IRS scams are not working anymore and now they're hitting people up with the, with the Social Security Administration scams.
0: Bad guys use ML and AI too. Right,
2: they do. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's something there involved here. Well, the people who reported the scams, only 3.4% of the people that reported the scam uh, said they had actually lost money. And the median loss, the median loss for the scam was $1,500. Wow! So that means that half the people in this scam lost more or, and half the people lost less. That is four times the average of, the, of fraud. You know, the, the fraud for uh, the, one of these scams usually lands around 350 bucks and this is four times that much. Of course, the most common vector or the most common way people asked, any, any guess of what they wanted from the, from the people they were scamming? Gift cards. Gift cards. That's what they mm-hmm. wanted. I have to say this and do a lot of things. I, I was giving a presentation a couple weeks ago. And I said, no government agency takes payment in gift cards and, <laughs> and not a lot of legitimate businesses take, take payment in gift cards. I know that there are VPN services that if you want to go out and buy them, they'll take payment in gift cards. And that's a legitimate <laughs> business. But generally speaking, they don't take payment in gift cards, right? There, uh, cryptocurrency was a second clo- uh, second, or distant second, not a close second at all. So, what do they say when, when they call? You know, or how do they how do they get people hooked? Right? What do they say? They say, "Yeah, your Social Security number has been suspended," mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they say that we've noticed some suspicious activity, or they say your Social Security number has been involved in a crime. And I can relate to that because last year my Social Security number robbed the liquor store, <laughs> <coughs> and that was a mess to clean up. <laughs> But the first thing they tell people, and this is an interesting point, is they say, you're about to have all your assets in your bank frozen. So go withdraw all the cash from your bank right now before it gets frozen. So people go out and they, if, if they're falling for this, they go out and they withdraw all their, all their cash. And there's no reason to do that. that ha- their, their accounts haven't been frozen, there's no risk of it of course, but now, now they have cash and now it's easier to convince these people to conver- convert it into, into gift cards. Right. And send them the codes.
1: Right. Hmm. Uh,
2: of course, the uh, the report goes on to talk about that the older people are the ones who get scammed, mainly because they have access to the accumulated wealth from their lifetimes, and a lot of times they might be in the early stages of dementia or Alzheimer's or some other disease that may make them much more vulnerable to this kind of attack. Yeah, it's an unfortunate uh, target, but it is the truth.
1: Yeah, Stu, I'm curious uh, for your insights on this. I mean, what is the Um, What is the attractive part for the bad guys about these government types of the, I think of the permanence of something like your social security number, which is a number that if you can change it at all, it is not an easy task to do. How does that play into the psychology of what the scammers are trying to do here?
0: Yeah, ultimately it is either a perceived benefit or it is preventing a negative consequence. And if you and usually the preventing the negative consequence is, is really impinging more than hey you won the lottery, uh, so you do focus someone's attention on that particular type of oh no I don't want that to happen especially uh, you know people that are easier to social engineer, so uh, the bad guys are are, are doing this uh, very methodically and they run this kind of scammed by the numbers too. They iterate through these scams until they find a, a, a particular vector and a particular scenario that works. Uh, and they're they're, they're smart uh, unfortunately and they go where the literally go where the money is. When you all are tracking
1: these sorts of things at no before what does the trend curve look like? So does one scam start to fall off before another one picks up or does, can one just come from out of the blue and suddenly that's the hot new thing? Is
0: there is there a pattern there? There are patterns. It depends a bit on what you're looking at. Um, at at no before uh, we get a, a couple of 10, 20,000 emails a day that get reported by users through the fish alert button. Hmm. And um, so we see, uh, everything that makes it through the existing mail filters and that gets reported. If you guys allow that, by the way, this is an opt-in program. Um, so we we analyze these um, and we use PhishyR to do the analysis. By the way, uh, we analyze these tens of thousands of emails that are coming in, and we certainly see patterns. We see types of attacks coming in and out. Um, at the moment, for instance, we see free platform attacks where the email gets sent through, for instance, Office 365, the landing page lives in a Microsoft environment and then uh, where they get dropped is also a Microsoft type, either landing page or uh, payload. So the, the problem is that your, your um, endpoint security is already whitelisted for those platforms. Mm. So we mm. see these things coming in ra- relatively early. Mm. Interesting.
1: All right, well those are our stories for this week. It is time for our favorite part of our show and that is our catch of the day. I love this part. <laughs> Our catch of the day this week was sent in by a listener. This is a bit of a a classic uh, catch of the day. Uh, There's been lots of variations of this one, but uh, we thought we'd have some fun with it this week, and we would let our special guest, Stu Showerman, take the honors and read our catch of the day. So, Stu, whenever you're ready.
0: Hey, as you can see, there's no need for me to introduce myself to you because I don't have any business with you. My duty as I'm mailing you now is just to assassinate you. <laughs> Seems if legit. you don't comply, I have to do it as I have already been paid for that. But I have to ask you this question. What is the problem you have with your friend that made him hire us to kill you? <laughs> now, do you want to live or die? As someone has paid us to kill you, get back to me now if you're ready to pay some fees to spare your life. Thirty-eight hundred bucks is all you need to spend. All right. <laughs> what a deal!
1: First of all, Joe, why did you hire someone to kill me? Um, uh, Never mind. Being kind. Of tired of all right, let's unpack this uh, real quick here. Uh, Stu, what's going on here? What's, what's the, uh, what, what are all the elements that are involved in, in something as absurd as this, yet still, I suppose, successful enough to be
0: Well, obviously, you you unpack this, and the very first thing is you want to prevent this very negative consequence.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I can't think of a more negative consequence.
0: No. So shock value. (laughs) Right. Um, Right. Instant, oh, my God, is this real? Right. Um, And then um, how do I pay, Uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's an extreme example of uh, getting people to worry so much that they just stop thinking all the stress levels go way off the scale and you're no longer able to rationally decide.
2: So you're short-circuiting the thought process. Yes, yeah.
0: yeah. It's interesting too that it doesn't,
1: like it says your friend has put this hit out on you, doesn't have any details about that friend. So right. I imagine everyone starts thinking like, yeah, I probably have a
0: friend who would. <laughs> <laughs> like,
2: and my yeah. friends know who it is. That's yeah. <laughs>
0: You yeah. know, if you if you break Probably it down, true. there there is this concept of the OODA loop, that's observe, mm-hmm. orient, and decide, and act, and um, this is something they train fighter pilots in. Mm-hmm. Top Guns literally are trained on OODA loop. Um, the bad guy is essentially trying to bypass and short circuit the OODA loop. Instead of observe, orient, decide, and act, what they want you to do is observe and act the orient and decision are taken out. right? And that's typically what this kind of thing does. Yeah, yeah.
1: All right, well that is our catch of the day. It is time to move on and we want to welcome our special guest to this special edition of the Hacking Humans podcast. He is one of the most well-known hackers in the world and he is know Before's chief hacking officer. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Kevin Mitnick.
3: Excellent. Good to be here. Yep. Thank you. So, talk about phone freaking. You want to <laughs> jump beginning. right into phone? Freaking. All, right, all right. Let's that was, go. Let's go. That was, a, that was, a, that was actually right. cool. Well, back in the day, when I was on the other side of the fence, I took control of a lot of the Bell operating companies in the United States because it was analogous to taking over root DNS servers. So, back in the day, I could. Uh, take a dial-up number, because that's what we used back in the 80s and 90s, and I could basically call forward it to my system that would simulate the login to whatever operating system they're going to log into. I'd be able to capture the credentials, like a credential harvesting, what we call a credential harvesting fish, and that was because I had the power through the phone network to actually forward the number that the target was dialing to myself, and then I could capture any credentials, so then I could obviously log into the system. That's how easy it was back in the day. Just to give us some perspective, back then, were the
1: phone companies not looking for this sort of thing? Were, were, did they just not think enough people, were you ahead of them enough that they weren't looking for these sorts of incursions?
3: Well, actually what gave us the ability to compromise the phone company, they used pretty decent security back then, dial back security. So the systems would have to dial you back or you'd have to have a second, not two-factor authentication, but a second password. but because we were able to use telephone pretexting, which is a, a very uh, well-known form of uh, uh, social engineering, we're able to pretend to be that insider and actually get the insiders inside the Bell operating companies to help. Uh, for example, hey, I'm out in the field. I'm having problems dialing into like Cosmos, which is a system back in the day. Um, I'm dialing into this dial-up number. You know, uh, Can you walk me through the process? And that sort of thing. And they would be very helpful because if you had if you know the terminology, if you know the lingo, and you sound like a true insider, they believe it. Yeah, And that's what made it so powerful back in the day. If you can control the switches where all the calls are placed through, that's an immense amount of power to control anything that you'd use dial-up technology back in the day. Hmm. When you were a kid, growing up,
1: what is your first recollection of dare I say, malicious use of social engineering? Like to get something that someone didn't want you to have, do you have a first
3: memory of, whoa, this works? Well, not particularly, but I knew it was with the phone company because another student in high school who showed me all these tricks he could do with the phone really impressed me. It was kind of like magic. And uh, what I did is I kind of listen to him call up different departments of the phone company, pretend to be a technician or uh, somebody who had the authority to have that particular type of information. And I was just amazed at what this guy could do. So I, essentially, I pretty much learned this on my own, pretty much through trial and error. So at the end of a year or two, I had the ability to basically call I knew the departments in in Ma Bell probably better than the employees. Mm. I knew who to call, who I had to be, what information I was after, and if you knew their internal numbers, you had that credibility, because their internal numbers were secret. So if you were calling on a specific number and you you spoke the proper lingo, you'd get the information 90% of the time. It's the same method that private investigators use to do what they call skip tracing and that sort of thing, is they have teams of investigators that use the same type of tradecraft, well used to, before it was criminalized. Because when I started doing this, there was actually no laws against pretexting the phone company. That didn't happen until after this HP fiasco, Um, I forgot, I think it was uh, 10 or 15 years ago, where someone on the board of HP hired a PI, Mm. and the PI used telephone pretexting to get the cell phone records of the other board members to identify who the leaker was. when that all blew up for HP, then they actually criminal, federally criminalized pretexting utility companies. Hmm. So that was a common methodology that private investigators used to do to identify where somebody lives, to do locates and that sort of thing. Does it
1: surprise you that all these years later that the phone system is still
3: as an active uh, uh, avenue for these sorts of scams? It uh, doesn't surprise me. I mean, even today, as I sit here, uh, telephone pretexting works quite well when trying to attack an organization. The cellular mobile operators have come uh, have come a long way. They're much better in doing authentication. It used to be just having the target's last four digits of their social security number to authenticate. Now they have you put in you know passwords. They have you they text uh, send you a text message to your phone where you have to verify a pin before they'll even talk to you at customer service, so they've definitely come a long way, uh, the Bell operating companies, but organizations are commonly still pretexted as we sit here and that is a very strong form of social engineering because you get instant compliance. So if I can call somebody up at the company, pretend to be from IT, call somebody that I know is not technically astute, have them enter one command into their computer, and they don't understand what they're entering, but they believe it's gonna fix a problem, Uh, and then you get instant access. And that, in some cases, is much better for the attacker than waiting for someone to open up an email. How much do you think having an innate sense
1: of uh, empathy has helped you in the work that you do, being able to sense what's going on on the other side of that phone line when you're trying to work your way and and, uh, influence someone to do what you want them to do? Yeah,
3: it's totally improv. So basically, as you're sizing up whether the target is hesitant, whether they're asking questions, you know, asking questions where they're kind, you can kind of sense they're not comfortable or they're questioning your identity or questioning the need, then in some cases you would just back out of that request and go to some other target but you kind of have to go where the conversation is gonna go, kind of like what Apollo Robbins was uh, discussing earlier today in his keynote, is you have to set the story and make sure that the target is gonna believe that story and is gonna cooperate with that end result. Case in point, I was hired to test a a large uh, Canadian retailer and uh, found out they used a cloud HR provider, uh, found that the uh, cloud HR provider did not register the domain, Let's call it payroll.ca, basically I registered it, I became the proud owner. I basically cloned the site, so now payroll.ca looked exactly like payroll.com, got SSL certificates from Let's Encrypt, so it looked very real. And then here was the fun pretext, simply calling up a director of HR, who I found in LinkedIn, pretending to be somebody from IT, saying hey, we're standardizing on the .ca TLD, which is Canada, and uh, asked her, hey, uh, are are you logged in to payroll.com? Oh yeah, well, can you go ahead and log out for me real quick? I need you to try something. Can you go to payroll.ca? Can you go ahead and, and she goes, yeah, it's asking me for my login and password. Yes, can you please log in? She logged in, it actually redirected her and actually logged her into the real payroll.com. And and I said, okay, great. Uh, For now on, use uh, payroll.ca. And um, if you have a problem, just call the help desk. Meanwhile, I had her credentials, new two-factor authentication, had access to all the HR data. (laughs) It literally took five minutes on the phone. The longest part of the attack was waiting for DNS to propagate. So, and 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 this was this was literally six months ago, six to nine months ago. So it's uh, pretty fresh. We're seeing and, a lot of
2: stories that come yeah. out now about these two-factor authentication social engineering sites, and, and what you're talking about is is perfectly uh, a perfect example of of that, where you can just ask people for the the credential that you need and.
3: Well, you don't, well, you to don't want to ask someone for their credentials. That sets no, I mean, up a On, red, on, red on red flag. the website, on the website, your form. Oh, yeah. That's how, how you want to do it, is you want to put the person in the position to entering their credentials. Right. And then they enter, it's a believable story.
2: Right. And then they enter the, uh, the, the, the two factor token key, whatever that is, the number that comes up at the time, whether it's well, a text or whether they have a,
3: a, a pre shared key. In this particular case, they didn't use two-factor. That's what made it work so well. <laughs> so I didn't have to use two-factor to log in. It's even easier. So that's what made it, you know, so much easier. If there was two-factor, I'd have would have had to change up the attack. Then I probably would have had her type something into her machine, or you know, uh, they essentially change, launch a payload for me. Change the web page though, right, and ask for the ask for the two-factor code. And yeah, you the- could pop something up. You know, please download this. You know, um, plugin. that's uh, it's something new. You know go ahead and do it it's gonna make it's gonna make things run faster right right and and I can kind of size up when I'm calling a target up on the telephone I could size up whether they're going to cooperate usually in the first 30 seconds really yeah because I kind of I, I identify kind of their tone of voice whether they seem cooperative whether they're technically astute and would understand going to like a command shell what that means usually you know, you don't call an IT person because they're gonna know better. Right. You call somebody else that's not gonna know better and that way you get your foot in the door of the network. Yeah, so, but these telephone pretexting attacks are still, I mean, it's more focused because it's not scale. Phishing right. is scale, right? And uh, telephone pretext, uh, pretexting is really, you know, I would say ultra-focused on a fear, spear phishing attack. Do
1: you right. ever think about what you yourself might be vulnerable to? If someone
3: were gonna come after you, What's your kryptonite? Well, I always worry about being attacked because <laughs> I'm, I'm not invulnerable myself. I do a lot of traveling uh, around the world. I, I was recently in China speaking for Tencent. Um, I remember when I was there, I felt uncomfortable leaving my laptop in the hotel room, right, because I'm sure with the capabilities and tradecraft that the intelligence agencies have, they could easily compromise machine through hardware and potentially put some sort of hardware implant on my machine and i always realize that i unless i take my laptop to the shower with me you know in some particular cases i could always be compromised so i always worry about it so what i do to mitigate that risk is every uh, minimal, uh, minimally every year I buy a new machine and reload it from scratch.
0: And he sends me the bill. I send Stu the bill. <laughs> yeah.
3: In fact, when I, went, when, I, actually when I flew back from China, I called Stu earlier. Hey, can I order the laptop a bit earlier this year? <laughs>
0: and I said, sure.
3: Yeah, but um, yeah. So I'm definitely concerned about that. I mean, there's malicious, uh, well, obviously malware Payloads that uh, are extremely difficult to detect, no matter if you have AV or the more advanced EDRs these days. Um, there's, you know, a lot, you know, I know, you know, we do this. I do this for a living as I try to develop uh, payloads for testing that get by EDRs, and in most cases, we're able to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I could do it, the bad guys could do it, and uh, that's what worries me. Do I have an implant, whether it's software or hardware, on my machine? Mm-hmm. And and that scares me, right? But unfortunately, I have to use the technology. Well, fortunately, I have to use it. Right? Yeah.
2: I don't know that I would take my uh, take my hardware out of the country to to a different country for that. I think
3: I would buy scrap hardware, maybe. Well, it actually happened to me. Just a, a quick story: is I was in uh, Bogota, Colombia, and I remember I did a presentation for uh, a newspaper out there called El Tiempo, and. Uh, I went out to dinner, went back to the hotel room, put my key card in, and it was a yellow light. And I know usually from these type of locks, yellow light means it's locked from the inside. So we go down to the reception, get a new key, come back up, yellow light, and did this three times. Finally, I had security come with me. They uh, used their card, it opened the room, I look in the room, everything looks normal. Prior to flying to Bogota, I had a friend of mine replace a hard drive in my MacBook. Back then in the MacBooks, you actually had to pull out the keyboard, it was like a whole operation to change your, your hard drive, so I had her re- replace it with a, a hard drive which had more capacity. Formatted it, set up all my applications. Flew to Bogota. This happened. All right. So then, I didn't think anything of it. I just go, that's a weird fluke, but hey, I guess they have cheap locks in Colombia. Mm-hmm. So so you dismissed it. I dismissed it. Right. So I fly back into Las Vegas at the time, and then the, the hard drive, the new one, was giving me some issues. So I was going to replace it and go get a new one. So I asked the same friend if she could just swap it out. So she's in my apartment with the entire laptop disassembled on my, on my table. And she goes, why were you in your laptop? I go, what are you talking about? She goes, well, the screws I put in, I put in very loosely so I could you know, remove the hard drive again if I had to. These are super tight. Then it hit me like a ton of bricks. Somebody was in my room, obviously uh, taking the hard drive out and cloning it. And I was like wow. super angry over the whole thing. So in that particular case, that was a big wake up call that in foreign countries, you know, you could definitely be a target. Yep. Yeah. We're
1: yeah. gonna take a, a few questions from audience members. We've got some mics set up here at the, the front of these two uh, rows. Uh, so if you have some questions, please make your way up and we would love to hear Uh, From that, instead of having runners, we've got the mic set up here on the stand. So please don't be shy. Come on around. And uh, if you have a question, we would love to hear it. Uh, In the meantime, um, Kevin, where do you think we're headed? Um, Do you think we are gaining ground on this? Do you think... Uh, the,
3: the word is starting to get out. What do you see in the, the near future? Well, I like, I like what you guys are doing, For in fact, is educating people about the scams. Last year, we invited uh, Frank Abagnale to keynote at the conference, and Stu and I had breakfast with him, and one of the key takeaways from that breakfast, was what Frank said, which I totally agree with, is the way to protect people from being scammed is educate them about the scam. Unfortunately, there are so many different scams, you can't possibly do that in scale. Mm-hmm. right so what i think is in, in, important is to do as much user education and training about the class of these type of scams how they work so people could recognize similar ones and then actually doing what we do at no before is actually doing the attacking the user using the same type of tradecraft so when they fall for it then instead of ransomware, they're you know, obviously gonna get some training, and actually try to inoculate that person against that type of attack. So I think that's important for phishing, for pretext phone calls, for even physical security. Because right. we could use social engineering as a part of gaining physical access to your facility. Right, yeah. right. So I think, I, th- I, I think it's critical.
1: Yeah, I think we have a question over here. Sir, go ahead.
4: Uh, hi, Kevin,
3: Uh have
1: a question okay.
4: regarding uh, two-factor actors, authorization specifically like uh, Google Authenticator and how easily that would be for like a hacker you know, to bypass or I don't know, somehow duplicate that on their own telephone or something like that.
3: Yeah, I'm gonna actually do a demonstration tomorrow that if you're not using FIDO or UTF technologies, it's pretty trivial. Uh, it's not really bypassing Google Authenticator, it's really fooling the user into going to a particular domain which we proxy the user through and are able to steal what they call the session key. Because when you're interacting with uh, a website, for example, and you authenticate, have to authenticate, it creates a session key so every time you're visiting other parts of the site, you know, you're maintaining state. Otherwise you'd have to log in for every page you connect to, which is not you know, usable. So the guy that developed this tool, if you want to Google it, is a, a Kuba. Uh, he developed a school called Evil Jinx, E-V-I-L-G-N-X, and that's actually the tool that demonstrates how this attack works. The only solve for this attack is using something like a YubiKey or Google's Titan USB key. Okay. Um, and uh, of course, educating people that even though they use two-factor authentication, if the websites that they're using do not offer UTF, which there's a lot that don't, that that's where the user education and training is important
4: okay.
3: to educate people about this class of attack. That good. All right, let's jump back over here. Sir, go ahead. So as someone who has a certainly high profile, do you have recommendations that we could pass along to other high profile indi- individuals uh, in our organization to kind of lower their risk profile or lower their risk surface? Well, I, I think, like for example, celebrities. I get, uh, I get calls from celebrities that are actually worried about being compromised. So they have to take uh, extra precautions, for example, enabling two-factor authentication, in some cases, using virtual machines to use the internet rather than their host machine. I get these calls from time to time where we have to change the way a person behaves using technology and using the internet, using their mobile phone, using their computer, and uh, it becomes where it's a lot less convenient, but at the same time, it's much more secure. So that's what we do to help people that are more likely to be targeted because of their status. Hmm.
4: All right, let's switch back over here, go ahead. Hey, how you doing, Kevin? Um, kind of a story with a short question. Uh, I'm noticing more the pattern is, our inf- like we're protecting ourselves, but the people responsible for our information are more likely to leak it. So for an example, and for the record I didn't do this, Um, I noticed last year that at the bar, if you want to charge something to your room, you just need a last name and the room you're in. And I happened to call this uh, uh, before we came through today or yesterday uh, to ask about my room. They just needed to know like the day I was arriving and my last name and they would provide the room after I explained to them that, oh, my wife's afraid of heights. She doesn't want to take the elevator very high. Any way we can get a low level room and I just wanted to confirm that, they gave me my room number. So in in that scenario, obviously anybody could just go to the bar now with the room number of Kevin Mitnick and charge Kevin a drink uh, on his tab, which I wouldn't do that. But what, I mean, if you want to, that's fine.
3: Well, all the hotels around the world have what they call non-registered guests or incognito. Mm-hmm. So, once you tell registration or the front desk manager that you want to be considered a non-registered guest, what celebrities do, it's uh, when they, there's a big red flag on, on their machine, mm-hmm. or on their computer rather, that says not to give any information out. So, you hope that that works to solve the situation.
4: All right, well, if yeah.
3: Johnson- but So, that doesn't stop somebody from following you to the room though. Sure, sure.
4: So, if Johnson has a bunch of drinks on his tab, my bad. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, let's uh, go over here, and then we'll finish up over here. We've got two more questions quickly. Go ahead, sir.
4: So, Kevin, uh, you mentioned earlier a little bit about uh, Ma Bell Company, the exploits available through them back in the day, and an older term that people don't hear too much anymore, freaking. There's still a lot of organizations, even medical organizations, insurance companies, that request that you send them information not by email but through fax. And I was wondering, in your opinion, what is the, the vulnerability there even today when sending faxes to a number that you believe is to an insurance company? When you're sending a fax, is it possible for that to kind of be listened in on, a duplicate fax created at a different location? And do you know in the industry, are there any efforts to move away from fax? Because I think I speak for a lot of people here, we're tired of fax, man. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Sending faxes. So first of all, it's, it's a target rich environment if you can compromise some of the fax machines these days because you can get all the previous uh, communications out of those machines. And in a lot of cases, you compromise a company's wireless network. I just had a recent case of this where we were able to connect all the printers and all these types of devices like fax machines and they use default credentials which gave us access to all, all that particular data. The concern about you know fax machines of course is could there be a redirection as, you know, of where an attacker could manipulate the number that you're calling and forward it off. Now, there's been some new research. When I used to do this, I used to use access a switch of a phone company and do call forwarding, and then I'd be able to have my target be redirected to me. Now there's newer ways of doing this, and I uh, suggest that you guys Google this guy, Karsten Knoll. He's the one that actually developed a bad USB attack Uh, which is very, uh, it's pretty much common knowledge. But he's done a lot of research into what we call, uh, into Ma Bell's SS7 network. And what they're able to do, what he demonstrated this at the Computer Chaos Club in Germany, I think two years ago, is how they were able, through accessing SS7, being able to do, basically redirect the target number to themselves. And that was pretty much incredible because on SS7, which used to be a closed network just for the Bell operating companies, now it's pretty much an open network, which makes it, you know, which they don't have all the security controls in place. So they were able to manipulate those security controls to get a target's location, GPS location, and they were also able to manipulate it to actually essentially through SS7 forward the target to a number of their choice. Mm, so take a Google it, it's actually a, a pretty interesting presentation at the Computer Chaos Club uh, by Karstvindel. Yeah. All right, last question, sir. Hello, Kevin. So I'm leaving the country later this month
1: and I'm taking my notebook computer with me because I might need to connect to networks back here in the States. What do I do to the notebook before and after the trip?
0: Oh, can uh, I jump in on yes. that one? Yes. <laughs> we, we actually just came out with a module that, that exactly addresses that. Uh, safe travel for road warriors, it's 15 minutes Has a checklist. What do you do before? What do you do during? What do you do after? You can print a checklist in a PDF. There's a quite a, a shopping list of things that you should be doing. And Kevin and I, we created that module together. Um, it's extremely simple to uh, you know, step through it, print it, and then you go through the list. You'd be surprised. And realize when you're
3: crossing borders, and like if you go into Canada, uh, Uh, their customs agents could demand your pins to your mobile devices, they could demand your passwords to your your computers, and if you don't, I believe, there was a guy that was actually sent to prison for failure to comply with giving up the credentials, and so now you're put in a position when you're traveling that any of the uh, border patrol agencies in those countries have free access to all the data on your devices, which might be of a concern if anything is under non-disclosure agreement, and that sort of thing. So as one of the recommendations we make in the training course is, when you're traveling, you might consider setting up a travel machine, where you're not taking all your data, but the data that's necessary for you to do, you know, what you need on the road, and that sort of thing. Um, but definitely keep in mind when you're crossing into different jurisdictions, the laws change, and you could actually go to prison for not providing your credentials, or in some cases, in most cases, they'll just take your equipment. So you don't provide us or password, that's fine, sir. We're taking your equipment. We're going to try to anal- uh, do an analysis. We'll send it to you in about six months to a year.
1: Well, folks, uh, that is all the time we have. Thank you all for joining us for this special live version of our Hacking Humans podcast. How about a round of applause for both Kevin and Stu? <clears throat> We want to thank all of you for joining, and we hope, of course, that you will uh, log into that podcast app and you'll subscribe to both Hacking Humans and our Cyberwire Daily Podcast. Thanks to all for coming today. Thanks so much. That is our show. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Our staff writer is Tim Nodar. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.
4: Thank you.